Before I introduce my expert guest today, I just want to thank everyone listening for their support with the launch of my new book, Your Baby Doesn't Come With a Book. It's now available online and in-store at all good booksellers, and I'm just blown away by the reception, by the amount of people reading it, sending in their reviews, gifting it to pregnant friends. I am filled with gratitude and pride. You can get it at Big W, Amazon, Booktopia, Dimix, Target, The Memo, and more. I'm on a mission for all parents to be empowered when their baby arrives and thrive, not just survive, the first four weeks. Hi, I'm Dr. Daniel Golshevsky, paediatrician and father of three. Welcome to my podcast, Dr. Golly and the Experts. Each episode, I'm joined by a parent who has faced an enormous challenge in raising their child and come out the other side as the expert. The road to diagnosis can be a long and sometimes tricky one. When Sarah Warden's son Callum was two years old, a diagnosis was given that never felt right to Sarah. But through persistence and following her maternal instincts, they eventually arrived at the correct one, San Filippo Syndrome. It's described as childhood dementia, and it is estimated that there are only 75 children living with it in Australia. Sarah, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Tell me this story from the beginning. Tell me about your pregnancy with Callum and early days. My pregnancy with Callum was textbook. It was very uneventful, almost disappointingly so. I like adventure and I like excitement. (laughs) And you hear all kinds of stories about things that happen during pregnancy. And mine was very, very easy. I Boring. We like boring in medicine. Boring. Yeah, definitely. I cycled to work in the city from about 13 kilometers out. And I was still doing that pregnant with Callum at 39 and a half weeks. (sighs) So... It was easy. I didn't have any issues. He grew normally as far as we knew right up until right up until he was born. So that was a there was nothing interesting or adventurous about it at all. And when you laid eyes on him, did it seem that there was something awry? So his birth was a little traumatic. It, it didn't go as we had hoped. I expected to have a very normal easy birth. All the midwives that I had met with said we expect this is going to be easy for you. Just come in when you're in labor and you'll have the baby and it'll be wonderful. I was in labor for 23 hours when the obstetrician came in and said, the baby is stuck. The baby's in respiratory distress. We're going to need to do an emergency cesarean. So I was whisked down to the operating theater and, you know, it's all a blur. I don't remember a lot except that when they pulled Callum out, the surgeon said, well, this baby wasn't coming out any other way. He was huge. He was 4.2 kilos, which would explain why he was stuck. Um, But because he had been in respiratory distress, he was also blue and didn't look well at all. And there was just a flurry of activity. They put him up to my cheek very briefly so I could give him a kiss. And all I remember thinking was, sort him out, you know, take him wherever you need to take him. Like, don't bother with the niceties. Um, Something's Mm. wrong. Um, So he ended up in the NICU for four days and everything turned out fine. Once they had done a quick recess, he was okay. But it was certainly a much more, um, it was a very jolting experience off the back of a very easy and normal pregnancy. (laughs) I got my adventure and excitement (laughs) in the end. (laughs) 
<laughs> so he's born, he's, he recovers, you go home. Was it a largely unremarkable, enjoyable first few weeks? Unremarkable, yes. Enjoyable, probably not so much. But, but for, is that for regular <laughs> reasons of sleep deprivation? Sleep deprivation. We had trouble breastfeeding. He didn't latch well. And I was recovering from a surgery that I yeah. had not expected. I, you know, had expected to just bounce back and come and home. Having and previously be been very physical and active. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it was um, it was challenging because of the breastfeeding. I remember that was the the most challenging bit, but otherwise normal, unremarkable. So what originally prompted you to raise the red flag and what was the first inclination that something wasn't right? The first flag was raised by one of the educators at his childcare center. At what age? At just before two. So the first couple of years almost, he was very normal. He hit all of his milestones at the right time. All of his checkups were normal. There was nothing to indicate that anything was wrong. So just before two years old, one of the educators said, we're concerned about his speech. It doesn't seem to be developing as quickly as his peers. We think you should have him looked at by a speech pathologist. So we did. Um, We were also referred to a pediatrician. And she suspected that there was a developmental delay and some speech delay. But there was, again, at that stage, nothing serious that we expected. We also then saw an ENT specialist who confirmed that his adenoids were quite enlarged and that that might have caused congestion in his ears, which then might have caused some hearing Mm. difficulties, which would cause a speech delay. So once we kind of came around that circle, we thought, oh, okay, we'll get the adenoids removed. He had grommets put in. We expected that post that surgery, the speech would improve quite quickly. And it didn't. It didn't catch up. He didn't seem to be improving. So that was really when we started to realize that there might be something deeper happening with him. And we're talking two and a half, three... Yeah, probably just about two and a half years old. Yeah, And then we mentioned earlier the road to diagnosis. It's, it's very, very commonly a difficult one. It's not straightforward, especially when you're dealing with an extraordinarily rare condition. So describe the process that you went through with Callum. So when his speech therapy didn't seem to be helping, we went back to the pediatrician and said, this doesn't seem to be working. There's something else going on. And she immediately suggested that we begin the process of an autism or ASD diagnosis. Now, this was also in the middle of COVID. So it was really difficult to get onto any medical professionals or allied health professionals to get these things done. So we were on the wait list for an ASD assessment for what felt like forever And while we were waiting, his speech seemed to be falling away a little bit. Things that he used to be able to say. So regressing. Yes. Which is always a major red flag. Yes. With children. Yes, definitely. So we had the ASD diagnosis completed. They diagnosed him ASD level two. So that's of moderate severity. Moderate severity. Was his his behavior becoming increasingly challenging? We had noticed some hyperactivity. But other than that, nothing significant. Once we had the ASD diagnosis, the pediatrician brought us back in. And I remember her saying, what do you think about this diagnosis? And right away I said, it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. He was very engaged. He had a lot of eye contact. 
He was very social, which are, you know, they tend to be things that children with ASD struggle with. Mm. So to me, it just didn't feel right. And I said, I think we need to keep investigating. There's something else going on. And she said, I'm glad you feel that way because that was going to be my recommendation. And that pathway of investigation involved what? It was really hands-off for us. Once we had done some blood work and a urine sample, um, those were sent around to labs in South Australia and then the U.S. So it was a long time. It took probably about six months from the time we had the samples completed to the time that we had his diagnosis of San Filippo. And who gave that diagnosis? How did that come about? So the initial lab work was done in Adelaide, and that indicated that there was an elevated level of heparin sulfate in his mm-hmm. urine, which is an indicator of San Filippo syndrome. And to be sure, they sent it to a more sophisticated lab overseas, and they confirmed that that was the diagnosis. And Callum was what age? So we received the diagnosis when he was four and a half. And he's now six. Yeah. You are the expert in this condition. And when you're talking about rare conditions in pediatrics, you certainly are. You will know more than most doctors about this condition. I'm sure you've experienced yes. that. Can you explain what this is? What is it? Yeah, so it's a it's a very rare genetic condition. So both parents have to be the carrier of the gene, and it's a recessive gene, so it doesn't always present. Even when both parents have the gene, there's only a 25% chance that it will present in the child, resulting in San Filippo. Basically, what happens is the condition causes the body not to make an enzyme that clears heparin sulfate from the cells. And when heparin sulfate builds up, it causes toxicity and causes the cells not to function properly. This is a beautiful explanation. I wish I had you lecturing me at university. <laughs> so I want to add to it. I love sure. this. Everything you've said is perfect. The way that we conceptualize it in pediatrics is um, we talk about a particular part of a cell being mm-hmm. a lysosome, which right. is like a recycling plant right. within the cell. So it takes things, it chops them up, and then you use them or you get rid of them as waste. Right. And those enzymes are the recycling machines. And if you're missing one, you can't recycle, which means it builds up and builds up and builds up. Right. It's usually a sugar protein, which is called a mucopolysaccharide. So this condition is often referred to as mucopolysaccharidosis over accumulation of these sugar proteins. But it builds up and these are large molecules which accumulate in the cell and eventually it overwhelms the cell and the cell dies. So you get a progressive problem. But it doesn't affect every cell. And there are so many different storage disorders like this. These are called glycogen storage diseases. So there's huge variability, even amongst two kids with the same condition, huge, huge variability. You've lived with this, at least the diagnosis, for a year and a half. In what areas does it affect Callum the most? So for Callum currently, it's affecting his speech and it's affecting his memory. So obviously with his speech, it started regressing quite early. And now he's still very verbal. He loves to babble, but we don't understand most of what he's saying. San Filippo is also known as childhood dementia. It falls under a a dementia disorder um, because basically the same thing happens to the brain as happens in older people that experience dementia. There's memory loss, 
um, the cognitive understanding declines quite quickly. Disinhibition is yes. why they've, you know, they fit all the criteria for ADHD. Yes, absolutely. So we, you know, we know he doesn't understand most of what we say to him. He doesn't understand anything that you try to talk about in terms of past tense or future tense. He really only understands limitedly what happens in the moment for him. So it's very challenging day to day trying to communicate with him. And and one of the things about San Filippo is of all these mucopolysaccharidosis conditions, it tends to be the least uh, affecting physical appearance. Does Callum look normal? If you saw him, would you think something's not right? Yeah, so that's it's interesting the way you phrase that. You wouldn't know to look at him as the average person you would not know. And we often have people come up to us in the shopping center. It just happened a few days ago. And they'll say, your child is so beautiful. Look at his hair. Look at his eyebrows. Look at those big eyes. A lot of the San Filippo children look very similar. They actually have these features on their face. Um, They're referred to by the medical professionals as coarse facial features. Can you describe what they are and how Callum looks different? Yeah, so... It does create a very specific shaped face, and it's hard to describe unless you're looking at a photo of it, but he has really large, bushy eyebrows and big, big eyes, very full lips, and it all sounds it all sounds great. It all sounds wonderful. They're very desirable features. Yeah, people, uh, <laughs> people spend a lot of money to get these features. Absolutely. We've had people say um, that they would spend hundreds of dollars to have his hair. You know, he's got really thin... <laughs> thick, coarse, beautiful, wavy hair that I describe as kind of the surfer boy yeah. hair. Um, but those are all things that are affected. They're, they're all a result of the San Filippo gene. And they, they often have a very st- strong bone structure, prominent jaw. Yes. Again, these are features which don't look normal in that age group. Yes. So does it affect their appearance? Not in a negative way initially. And it's something that our pediatrician had put in her report early on but hadn't flagged with us until we started doing more diagnosis. Um, So when I go back to read, she had picked up on that. She had asked us early, who does Callum look like? Does he look like you or his dad? Does he look like one of the grandparents? And we'd say, oh, we sometimes get flashes of grandpa or looks like my brother a little bit, but we couldn't quite put our finger on it. And now we know why, because San Filippo actually does affect the way they look. So it's a a really important distinction. It affects them, but not in a negative way. Yes. Do you get looks? Do you you perceive judgment if he is behaving in a certain way in public and he doesn't look physically or cognitively disabled? Not yet. We haven't had that experience. There's sometimes... How much are you out with him? as much as I can be all the time. To be out of the house? Out of the house, absolutely. It's it's tough with his ADHD and um, to be in the house cooped up all day. He becomes bored very easily. And what's it like being out? What's it like being at a cafe, at a, a supermarket? How is it when you are social with him? It can be challenging because he does need a lot of sensory input, but the sensory input needs to be at his discretion and his choice. So he will sit in a cafe for a little while if he has his iPad or if you're very, very engaged with him one-on-one. But otherwise, he really needs to be out wandering around. He likes to look at people. He's always loved people's faces. 
So when I take him out now, I'll often go to a shopping center and we just walk. And I let him, you know, lead the way. He walks up to people, looks right into people's eyes. And, you know, people are lovely and they'll say, oh, hello, and how are you? And what's your name? And he doesn't understand them. He won't answer them. He'll just walk away. And so I find myself a lot of the time just saying, oh, we're shy today. Or he's just saying hello in his own way. But one of the things that's tough about taking him out is that he doesn't understand fear or danger. So he will run into traffic if you're not paying attention. He'll he'll run into people. He'll get in the way. So it's challenging to take him out and, and be safe with him if you're has not it, attached to him. Has it impacted his mobility at all yet? Um, it, it is just starting to. We're noticing now that he's clumsier and he doesn't seem to have the spatial awareness that we would well, that you would expect for a six-year-old. Um, he bumps into things. He's unbalanced. There's been a few occasions where he's sitting in his chair and he just falls off of it. He's also in a phase now where he likes to climb, which I want to encourage him to do because it is good for his mobility. But, but at the same time, we don't have fear. <laughs> exactly. So conception of consequence. Yeah, so he's taken a few tumbles off the couch and off our armchairs recently. You know, one of the things that's a real silver lining about all of this is that he doesn't, because he doesn't have a long-term memory, if he feels pain, he gets over it very quickly. He forgets that he's fallen off the couch and bumped his head a minute later, and he's up singing and dancing and ready to go. Um, But again, that's also dangerous because then he doesn't learn the consequences. That's right. Often it's small tumbles that teach you to be cautious or to be careful. Yeah. There is no treatment for this condition. There's only intervention. What are the current interventions that Callum's getting? And in what way are they helping him and helping you? So at the moment, there's no medical intervention. He's not on any medication at the moment. But in terms of his day-to-day, the intervention is allied health therapy. So he's in behavioral therapy, music therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy, and he has an early intervention education uh, therapist as well. And these are designed to slow the progress of symptoms to retain yeah, the milestones that he has achieved? The, the idea was that we wanted to maintain his independence as long as possible. And in order to do that, he needed to be able to communicate, you know, something as simple as when he wants to get attention, he was becoming quite physical. And that's really difficult in a childcare environment where he's much larger than most of the children and the childcare educators find that difficult. So the behavioral therapist worked on things like teaching him to tap very softly on someone's arm. Now that takes a long time for a child to learn when they don't have a lot of cognitive ability, when they don't have that comprehension. They or don't, the memory. Or the memory, yeah. Mm. So it's just the repetitive nature, hours a day spent with him teaching him that if he taps gently, he gets the response. It makes everything easier for the child care and the kinder educators. It means that he can stay in those educational environments with his peers, which he loves. It means that we can then continue to work or have some time to ourselves when we need it. So the allied health intervention is key at the moment for us. You mentioned before about the way that it is inherited. So you need to have 
two parents who are both carriers of the condition and there's always one of four outcomes. One in four that the child is not affected and not a carrier. One in four that the child is impacted by the condition. And two out of four or 50% that the child is not impacted but is a carrier as well. Yes. So carrier screening comes into it. What are the implications for you from a reproductive point of view? What was offered to you? What was told to you in terms of your carrier status, etc.? Not much because we knew we weren't going to have another child once we found this out. But if we did want to have another child, we needed to have um, IVF. To be able to select out. That's right. Mm. And the other advice given to us was that the rest of the family should be tested so that we could determine which parent or parents we received it from so that we could then notify the rest of the family. I have lots of cousins who are in varying ages, getting married, having kids. So we wanted to make sure that... And they've all been tested now? I don't think they've all been tested. We wanted to test the grandparents, have the grandparents test, and then they could let the particular size of the family know. But it's been challenging. I think people don't want to feel blamed or responsible, even though there's no way they they could have known they were carrying it. Do you get those feelings? Have you ever... I think as a parent, you always blame yourself for what's happening to your child, whether or not you had any control of it. I don't blame myself now. I know that there's nothing we could have done. There's no way we could have known. I think some of the grandparents have struggled, and there has never been any feeling from us that anyone is to blame for this. It's just a really tragic coincidence. It's certainly brought us all closer, but I think there's been some some difficulty on their part, understanding the severity and and how this could have happened, mm. you know, to their one and only grandchild. And what's daily life look like? I mean, we, we've talked about hyperactivity, ADHD features, progressive dementia, short-term memory, impulse control, etc. One of the major things that is almost always impacted significantly in this condition is sleep. Yeah. So before we talk about what a day looks like, what does a night look like? It can vary greatly. Callum does have nights where he will sleep through. He'll sleep 10 to 12 hours, and we really enjoy those nights. He goes through phases where he'll go to bed 8, 9 o'clock, and he's wide awake at midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and he's up the rest of the day. He doesn't nap. He doesn't get tired he will just And he's not be just lying in bed overnight. He's up and he's busy. The moment he's awake, he's going right to the light switch, turning on the lights, pulling out all of his books, singing, dancing, ready to go, up for the day. What do you do? You get up. You don't have an option. He can't be left alone, obviously. So we have a lot of uh, Netflix running in the background most of the time to keep him entertained. Do medications work with him as they would in another child? Things to assist with sleep? Uh, no, would be my short answer. Melatonin, unfortunately, doesn't seem to help much with the sleep issues. And other drugs, other heavier drugs for sleep, tend to be ineffective 
with children with San Filippo. It's definitely one of the big issues that the current research is trying to address because it is just debilitating when everyone in the household the has been family. up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, there's not been a lot of progress. And those drugs also tend to come with other side effects that can be difficult. And in kids with San Filippo, you don't necessarily want to be over-medicating and having all sorts of other symptoms pop up. It becomes really challenging balancing that. But it's uh, we're tired. We're all tired a lot. Permanently so. Permanently. Yeah, it's exhausting. And it's one thing to be exhausted. You know, if you're looking after a newborn, these tasks are relatively repetitive, mundane. You're talking about three or four kilos of yes. body that you're moving around, manipulating, carrying, etc. Callum's almost six. And you're doing challenging days on the back of disrupted sleep. So what does a day look like for you? So at the moment, Callum is still full-time during the week between childcare and kinder. So we get up in the morning, whatever time that is that Callum decides is time to get up. And we get him ready. It can be challenging when he doesn't want to get ready. He's happy to just stay home with us. And he weighs 30 kilos now. So trying to convince him to, you know, stand up off the floor or get him dressed, everything is very physical with him now. Getting him into the car is a challenge. He doesn't always know how to step up and get into his car seat. So I'm often doing a lot of lifting in and out of the car. He'll go to childcare or kinder and I work full time. So then I'm home at the end of the day going to pick him up. And usually by the time he's done at childcare or kinder, he's tired, but he still has those bouts of hyperactivity. So in the evenings, we try to keep things as calm as possible, but he runs circles around the house. He's jumping on the furniture. And Um, are you frequently in and out of hospitals, doctor appointments, etc.? Definitely in and out of um, consulting appointments. We've been really lucky with Callum so far in that he's only needed the one surgery for his adenoids. But it's a lot of it's a lot of consulting at the moment. I guess the strange thing about San Filippo is that the children are born healthy. Mm. The cells haven't accumulated a lot of toxin at that point. So until they start to affect things in a in a way that, you know, affects day-to-day life, there's nothing interventional that needs to be done. It's just a wait and see process. And having this upper airway congestion, which is Mm -hmm. very common in in all children, are you in and out of GP rooms? We're really lucky that we've got a great GP. So we do a lot of it via telehealth um, because they know Callum well and they know us well. And often the respiratory illnesses are not severe, but they're lingering. So whereas most kids might pick up a virus or a bug you know, be sick for a couple of days and then they're over it. Callum can take three, four, five or six weeks to get over something like that. You know when to worry, when not to worry. You're very much in control of the medical side of things. Yeah, you you learn not to panic too much. Um, panic doesn't do anybody any good. Um, we have made trips to the emergency room if he's had a fever or he's had a bug for a while. And often it's, you know, he's been dehydrated a little bit, but that's been the worst of it. In terms of, I know there's a lot of variability with this, but in terms of life expectancy for Callum, what have you been told? 
We've been told a couple of things, and when you read the literature, it does differ, but typically we say early to mid-teens is the life expectancy. We know of children that have passed much earlier than that. We've also heard of people with San Filippo who have lived into their late 20s, so it really depends on the individual's condition and how quickly the disease progresses in their body. It's amazing. I mean, you know, the entire reason for starting this podcast was because of interactions I've had with parents over a decade where you you discover just how much parents know about these obscure conditions. And in pediatrics, when I was training, we have massive exams as part of our training. And uh, the final hurdle is a clinical exam, an oral exam, where you spend an hour with a child and, and a parent and you examine them, you take a history, you, you do everything you need to do to know everything about them and then you present to a board of pediatricians who are examining you. It's one of the most, I mean, I'm getting cold sweats thinking about that experience. I hated every second of it. But you get two what we call long cases where you spend an hour. Now you prepare for like a year, a year and a half. And you don't know what case you're going to get. So you need to know everything about Down syndrome, you know, and everything about muscular dystrophy, about this, about that. And it's just so stressful thinking, what am I going to get? What am I going to get? You're also doing it not in your own state. So we fly all around the country. And my two long cases were in Sydney and they were both this condition. That's interesting because we've actually assisted with those exams on two occasions yeah. here in Melbourne. And our pediatrician was very grateful because she had never seen it, a case it of it. It is so valuable for yes. us. I mean, you'd think that me at examination time should be at the peak of my knowledge. Mm. I learned so much yeah. during my exam <laughs> from these parents. Yeah. Because it's one thing to know, you know, read it in a book. Sure. But to actually see these families and to learn, you know, I can tell you all about lysosomes and the boring stuff that doesn't have any practical benefit, but to see what you go through and what you know and what's a real problem, what's a not a problem, it's phenomenal. What do you know about the future? We know that it's not, it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy. As he regresses, everything will become more difficult. The sleep will become more interrupted. His mobility will be further affected to the point where he'll be in a wheelchair. Um, things like his swallowing will become difficult, so he won't be able to feed himself. He'll eventually need to be fed through a peg. That's a tube that goes directly through the abdominal wall, directly into the stomach, right. bypasses the mouth and the swallow. Right. We know that he will probably have seizures. He's already having um, absent seizures, which we don't think at this point are causing any damage, but it's really hard to know given that he's already had neurological damage. Which is a cumulative thing as well. That's right. Um, and because each child is a little bit different in the way that the cells are affected and which cells are affected, we know that there's a range of things that that could be affected, cardiac function, liver function, kidney function. So it's really just um, a bit of a crapshoot in terms of what becomes the worst affected. And How do you live with that lingering? It's really challenging. You have to walk this tightrope every day of, of hope and reality 
the hope being that there could be a cure, there could be a treatment that becomes available that will improve his quality of life, extend his life. But the reality is that we're just not there yet. There is a lot of work that needs to be done. There's nothing promising at the moment in the clinical trials for kids that are over the age of about 18 months, two years old. So it's a heavy, heavy mental load, especially when you see your child with their peers. You know, I was part of a mother's group and I have moms in my neighborhood that have children all the same age. They're all boys. We had dreams of them all growing up together and going to school together. And when we see those children with Callum, it becomes a really stark comparison. The contrast. Of where they're at Mm. versus where Callum's at. And that will only become a bigger divide as as the kids get older because those kids will go on to do all the things you hope for your children. They'll go to school and they'll drive a car and go off to uni and have girlfriends and boyfriends. And Callum will never get to do any of those things. And you know, commonly with the elderly, we talked about the similarities with dementia. There is a very common pathway where those affected will stay at home as long as possible and then move to low-level care and eventually a high-level care home. Is that where these kids go? Do they go to homes? Typically, no. They stay at home with their family. We are supported by very special kids in Victoria, and they have respite care and palliative care that they can provide. But typically with, with kids, they're at home until the end. So the management of, as we discussed, peg feeds, potentially seizure medication, as these things accumulate, they all fall on your shoulders. Yes, it becomes the responsibility of the parents and the family. Absolutely. And you said that the communication is is hindered. Are you able to communicate with him in a meaningful way? He loves music. It's the one thing that he's really held on to. And so we do a lot of, he has formal music therapy, but we also do a lot of music at home because that's when we see him happiest. He's always smiling. He's really engaged. He wants to hold your hand and dance. And that's the way that I communicate with him the most. I sing everything to him. So as we're, you know, putting his shoes on, you sing it to the tune of Old MacDonald or Mary Had a Little Lamb. And he tend, well, we think he understands better when it's through song. It could just be... you feel that there is a connection. We, you know, it might just be us being hopeful, but yeah, that's the most meaningful connection we can have with him is through music. And we've talked about the impact that it has on you, what you carry during the day on the back of significant disturbed sleep overnight. Who or what is your support network? I'm really lucky that Callum's Australian family have been amazing. His grandparents in particular are extremely hands-on, very supportive. They live very close by. So um, if I need a break, if I want to go to the gym or have a night off, they're very happy to have Callum over for a sleepover and he absolutely adores them. So it works out well for everyone. And what about Shannon? Yeah, so Shannon's my current partner and he's been really emotionally supportive. That's where, you know, my my emotional support comes in. Um, he always is available for me to call or message when I'm having a tough day. There's certainly been a lot of tears down down the phone to him. And he's very logical, but very empathetic. Probably one of the most empathetic people I've ever met. Um, so How's he with Callum? 
He's excellent with Callum. He's a very natural father. He has two kids of his own, and I love watching him with his kids. He's he's very natural. He's very fun. And with Callum, he's just gentle and lets Callum come to him. And it's been a really it's been really beautiful to watch. One of the really difficult things about this for me is the kind of disintegration of the social network. I've always been a really social person. I like being out. I like seeing people. And it's become more difficult with his physical challenges and his cognitive challenges. But I also find that people pull away a little bit. It's a challenging diagnosis. I think as a parent, you kind of think, oh, that could never happen to me. And when you have somebody in your close social circle, it becomes a reality that, oh, actually, yes, these things do happen to people all the time. So I understand. I've got empathy for those moms who you know, don't want to face it, can't face it, find it challenging, don't know what to say. But certainly having the, the social fabric fall away from, from life is really difficult. What, what do you want to say to them? For those who don't know what to say or don't know what to do or don't know how to behave, what would be the most helpful for you? You know, I, I tell people that you can't say anything wrong. Anything you say is going to be helpful, just knowing that people are there and thinking about you and and wanting to support you. And really little things make a massive difference. You know, the mental load of caring for a child with this condition day to day and still trying to work and look after yourself and maintain relationships is really heavy. So little things like bringing somebody a coffee on your way to work is massive. I don't have to think about turning the coffee pot on to make a coffee in the morning. If somebody drops one off, it's amazing. Um, so it's those little things that really help and really can can make a big difference. It's amazing. It's so simple. It's, Very simple. It would be nothing for most people. Yeah, absolutely. My my partner is in Tasmania and he sends things through the mail. Um, new earphones for my my phone. You know, it's something really little and I he used mine one day and one of the earbuds was broken and he said, why haven't you bought new ones? I'm, I just don't have time. I don't think about it. That's not the top of the priority list. And what about your employer? Um, so I'm actually, I've just quit a job and I'm going to a new role with a new organization whose mandate is that flexibility isn't a privilege, it's your right. That's just how they operate. So it wasn't adequate previously. Yeah, so initially they were very supportive. And as I've needed more flexibility with, with Callum and with my family, it's become more challenging. It's become evident that they're not able to support that, which is their prerogative. That's fine. Um, but it's just meant that in the midst of all of this, I've needed to take some of my capacity to look elsewhere. And I think I found a really fantastic fit, which is a great outcome. But mm. it's certainly been a massive challenge. You've said that the most difficult part for you is the melting away of that social aspect of your life. Is there anything that you would love to see change? We obviously, we're not at a cure yet. We're not at a treatment, especially, you know, with a condition that is often diagnosed a few years into life. If there is any treatment and it's early, it's going to be missed. Um, what would you like to see change? One of the things that the San Filippo Children's Foundation, which is based in Sydney, one of the things that they're pushing for is early screening and and to get it on the um, the newborn screening 
list. It's a bit of a challenge because we don't have a cure for it, but we know that early intervention makes all the difference when it comes to the quality of life and extending these kids' independence and some of their skills that they have. Um, You know, Callum is in a really intensive behavioral therapy program that I got onto early on in his diagnosis. And even just in that 12 to 14 months that he was in that program, we saw him learning new words and learning phrases, which is really unusual, but it's because the therapy has been intensive. And if we had started that from a very young age, as he was learning to speak, we may not have seen the regression as early. He may have maintained some of those skills. It's hard to know. Yeah, but, but but even small improvements, you know, bringing you a cup of coffee changes mm-hmm. your day. So yeah. a small improvement in Callum would make a massive change to your life. Yeah. You know, I think about the fact that he used to be able to say, I love you. And I don't remember when it was that he said that for the last time, because you just assume your child is always going to be able to say that to you. And if I could hear him say that to me now one more time, it would be amazing. And had he had earlier intervention, he might still be able to do that. But when that fell away, we didn't realize how serious the condition was. What advice do you have for parents who are at that early stage having just received a diagnosis like this? I always encourage people to connect with the community. As you mentioned, there's only 75 children approximately in Australia with this diagnosis. So it is a small community. The best thing I did was reach out to the foundation through any allied health professionals or medical professionals who were familiar with it and get as much information as I could. But also, if you can get connected with other families in the San Filippo community, it's so important to know that there's other people going through what you're going through. It is a very unique experience to have a child with a terminal illness and no idea of what that journey looks like because it can be so different child to child. But it's also important to know that your life will go on. It will continue. You can still work. You can still have a relationship. You can still have friends. And some of those parents that I've met, some of them do amazing things on top of parenting these children. And it's really important, I think, for people to see that from the beginning because you can easily fall into a pit of despair that your life is over and, you know, things are going to be very dark. And they can be, but there's also a lot of light and a lot of hope and a lot of love in this community. And what advice, taking a step further back, what advice would you give to parents who are navigating those early stages of developmental concerns regressions, feeling like they're not being heard or the diagnosis they're being given is not correct? Don't ever quit if something doesn't feel right. Keep being persistent. Um, Keep asking questions. And if it doesn't feel right to you, you're the parent, you know, you know in your gut when when something doesn't feel right with your child. So just keep pushing. Um, I spoke to everyone I could And we ended up with an amazing team of medical professionals because I just kept asking, making phone calls, sending emails, Googling, anything I could do to get the most information I could. It's fantastic. 
as the expert in the room, what has this experience taught you? I've always been a big believer in living life to the fullest. And I think more than anything, it's really um, strengthened that belief for me. Uh, Knowing that Callum has a limited time with us, we go out all the time. I try to do everything with him. We travel, go on road trips. We do a lot of singing and dancing. We try to make the most of every weekend. And it's tough because we're always tired. And then, of course, being away for a weekend or down the beach, they're long days, but I just feel like it's worth it. To see him smiling makes all the difference for me. I think you realize that we take life for granted a lot. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed any more time with our loved ones than what we have right now. So I'm always trying to take advantage of what we've got in the moment and make the most of it. I'd like to finish on a high note. Tell me what's happening in a couple of weeks' time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's nice to see you smile and laugh. Yeah, well, I'm very excited. Um, Shannon and I are getting married in a couple of weeks, just less than two weeks now. So Fantastic. cruising down the east coast of Tassie and having a beach wedding and beautiful. I can't wait. Have a wonderful, wonderful time. Thank you so much. Sarah Warden, thank you so much for joining us. And to enjoy more parenting stories like this one, please like, follow, subscribe, and share Dr. Golly and the experts wherever you listen. And just before you go, I have a favor to ask. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you could rate and review the show so that more people can find us and hear these incredible stories just like Sarah's.